Would you pray with me before we start? What a beautiful preparation for the Word. It is in the cross alone that we glory because we have contributed nothing to this except our sin. We don't bring in nothing, and we're not accepted because of anything that we bring. We are accepted because we are in Christ. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for preaching this gospel to us through your word and sending people into our lives who preached it to us. We thank you, Lord, that in your sovereignty you have chosen to reveal truth to us, and we're not better off than those who are out there, Lord. We're not better than them in any way. We are better off because we believe the gospel, and we believe because you have given us faith to believe. And we know that it is all of you, and so we give you all the glory for that. I pray that as we go to this amazing text of Scripture that has been in the Bible for a long, long, long time, I pray that we would be reminded once again that it is faith alone that justifies. I pray that each one of us would believe that and would live in light of that. I pray for those who are here today, and perhaps, Lord, they have never trusted you. Perhaps they have never believed your word, never believed your gospel. Lord, we ask that today you would graciously open their eyes to believe. You would give them faith. You would call them to yourself. And I pray for us who know you. I pray for us who believe in you. I pray that we would be encouraged and be built up. I pray that we would not hold on to the things of this life thinking that somehow we can please you by our performance or be accepted by you because of what we do. But help us to fully rest in Christ. I pray that you give me grace to walk us through this passage of Scripture, and I pray that you would speak to the hearts of those who listen to this. In Jesus' name I pray all this. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. This afternoon, as I mentioned already, I want to bring you a message entitled, The Good All Gospel. We live in a world that does not put much stock in things that are old. We so easily discard old age wisdom for some novel ideas just because it's cool or because we think we're so smart or we're so sophisticated. I mean, parents and older people are considered dinosaurs because, I mean, they grew up without iPhones and internet. What do they know after all, right? You can understand how foolish people were back in the day and, you know, they needed religion, they needed God because they did not have the sophistication that we have today, and they did not understand the science. You see, today, we understand a lot more than what they did. I mean, those fools back in the day, they thought that when a woman gets pregnant, there's a baby in the womb. But today, we know it's just a clump of cells, unless, of course, mother, mother wants it to be a baby. I mean, those fools back in the day, they, they thought that only a woman can give birth. But we know better today, don't we? I mean, better thought, they thought that they could define what a woman is, but we understand today, scientifically, that it's not as simple as that. I mean, they were so backwards that they thought that men should marry women and women should marry men. But we understand that that's foolish. That's old. Now, we can go on and list these standards that are thrown away because we're cons they're considered to be old and useless, and now we're so smart and we're so sophisticated, and we just simply discard them. But you know, some of us still here believe that there is some value in things that are old and time-tested. I mean, 
just consider people who buy old books, old trinkets, and they paid large sums of money to acquire them. Why? Because they see some value and there is some value in them. Now, I am not saying that just because something is old, it is good. Idolatry is old, but it's not good. Baby sacrifice is old, but it's not good. But just because something is old, it does not mean it is bad. Now, let me ask you a question. How old is the gospel? How old is the gospel? You know, people think that perhaps you can go back to the time when the New Testament was written. Apostles came up with this novel idea we call the gospel today. I mean, if that was the case, then the gospel is at least 2,000 years old. And that's old. But as we go to our text today, you will find out that the gospel goes a lot farther back than that. It goes to the time of Abraham, at least. We're talking about 2100 B.C. Now, if we keep reading the Bible, we'll figure out that it goes back even further, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's how old the gospel is. And like I said, some people believe that apostles and the New Testament writers came up or invented the gospel. Because you see, you know, back in the day, God had this plan. We call it plan A. He had this plan A for Israel. And you know, by the time Jesus showed up, plan didn't work. And so God decided to discard that and says, let's, let's do plan B. And so what you have in the New Testament, they think, is a different way of salvation or plan B. Now let's just say that in God's sovereignty, there is never plan B. Because God is sovereign, He always accomplishes what He sets out to do. And when it comes to salvation of sinners, it is part of God's sovereign plan. Because he says, he foreknew you in eternity past. He chose you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he glorified you. So salvation has to do with God's sovereign will. So there is no plan B when it comes to salvation. In fact, with God, there is never a plan B. It was always plan A. So from Abraham, from, or from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to apostles, from apostles to us today, the plan of salvation was always the same. Here's the big idea for our passage. Justification was, is, and will always be by faith alone. That is what Paul is trying to get to us today. Justification was, is, and always will be by faith alone. Now, we are in Galatians chapter 3, and we were working our way through this book. And we said last time, when we were in the book of Galatians, that chapter 3 is this doctrinal section of the book where Paul defends the gospel, which he outlined in the first two chapters. In first five verses of chapter 3, Paul began his defense by appealing to their experience. He asks five questions, which we summarized in two questions. And the two questions that Paul asked in the first five verses of chapter 3 are these. First, Galatians, how did you get saved? Did you get saved by, getting, by being circumcised and by obeying the law? Or did you get saved because you heard me preach the gospel to you and you simply believed that message? How did you get saved? And question number two, how are you being sanctified? Are you being sanctified by believing the promises of God or by obeying Mosaic law? Now, he didn't answer those questions, but he posed them. And the obvious answer is, you got saved simply because you believed the message that I preached to you. And you are sanctified, and the Spirit of God is working in you because you continue to trust the promises of God. 
Now, in our text, which is verses 6 through 9, Paul calls two more witnesses to the stand in order to defend his position that gospel is the gospel of grace. The two witnesses in verses 6 and 9 are Abraham and the Scripture. Now, they could be one and the same because you learn of Abraham from Scripture. But just for the sake of clarity, we'll look at them separately. And this will be our outline. First, in verses 6 and 7, Paul makes an appeal to Abraham. Appeal to Abraham. And then he makes an appeal to Scripture in verses 8 through 9. And next Sunday, we're going to look at Paul's appeal to the law in verses 10 through 14. So join me as I read, beginning in verse 5, and we'll read verses 5 through 9. Paul writes this, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Let's begin with Paul's appeal to Abraham. Now, I begin reading in verse 5 because verse 5 sets us up for our passage. Specifically in verse 5, Paul is dealing with the subject of sanctification. Notice he said, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you. He's referring to what is happening right now in their churches. The Spirit of God is working in their churches. And Paul is asking them a question, is the Spirit of God working in you right now because of your obedience to Mosaic law or because of your faith and trust in the message that I preach to you? And the answer is obvious. The Spirit is at work not because of your obedience to Mosaic law, but the reason why you obey God and why you walk the walk of sanctification is precisely the opposite, is because the Spirit of God works in you. Now, to prove his point, Paul goes to Abraham. Now, Abraham is one of the most important figures in the Bible. He's mentioned 73 times by name in the New Testament alone. If you want to read his story, you've got to go back all the way to Genesis, chapters 11 through 25. In our section alone here, he's mentioned eight times. Now, the reason why Paul appeals to Abraham, because Abraham was the hero of the Jews and Judaizers. He was the father of the nation Israel. You remember his story, that God chooses him in Genesis chapter 12, And since Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of the Bible, it is the history of Abraham's family. His family becomes a nation, and what we have in the rest of the Bible is the history of the nation that came from Abraham. In the world of sin, destruction, idolatry, God selects one man, Abraham, and he promises to bless him and everyone through him. You see, everyone who was blessed in the Old Testament was in one way or another connected to Abraham. Abraham was the channel of blessing for the world. In fact, when God chose him, God said to him in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, if Abraham is such a central figure in the Bible, and he is, and if he is blessed, and if those who are connected to him are blessed, 
The question for us is, how did Abraham come to occupy such place? What was it in Abraham that qualified him for such a position? You see, if we figured that out, then we can ask the question, can I and you be in the same place so that you and I would be blessed just like Abraham was? And Paul sets out to defend that in this passage. You see, when it comes to justification by faith, Abraham is a prototype for that. Now, to be clear, Abraham was not the first person who ever believed because you can read the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, we got a hall of fame, right? You remember? The author of Hebrews, he lists all these people who believed and trusted God. And you remember, he doesn't start with Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, he begins by saying, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. In verse 5, he says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. In verse 7, he gives another example. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he drives this stake into the ground when he says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And he follows that up with a significant portion of that chapter, focusing on life and faith of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation Israel, and therefore he occupies such a prominent place in the history of Israel. Now here's a question for us. How did Abraham get saved? That's the question that Paul answers in verse 6. How did Abraham get saved? Now we know we're talking about salvation here because in verse 8, he's going to talk about justification of Gentiles. When we're talking about justification, we're talking about salvation and we're talking about redemption. And we'll see that it applies to how you get saved and how you continue in your Christian life. So how did Abraham get saved? The answer is in verse 6. Look at Paul's answer. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now notice the connection between verse 5 and verse 6. When he says, even so, literally just as, he asked in verse 5, hey, how, how do you receive the Spirit, and how does the Spirit work among you? Well, the Spirit of God works among you the same way he worked in the life of Abraham. Let me give you an illustration. Even so, Abraham... Now, before we looked at this verse, let's define a few terms here. Notice it says here, Abraham, number one, believed. What is believed? I mean, we throw this word around, and I mean, we understand, but what is believed? When we're talking about believing, we're talking about having a conviction and trust. You see, you are convinced that the said truth or proposition is true, and you trust it. I was explaining the difference between believe and trust to an Uber driver this week. And I said, well, I, I just called Uber, right? And if you were to pull up on the piece of junk with doors falling off, would I sit in your car trusting that you're going to get me to West Sac? No, I wouldn't. I might believe that you might get me there, but I'm not going to sit in your car because I don't trust you because it's going to fall apart. See, that's the difference between simply saying you believe something and you trust something. Trust is to sit into that car and go 70 miles in the freeway. That's trust. 
Now, we're talking about belief here. We're talking about trust when you sit and you place yourself in the seat and you let them take you somewhere. When he says here, Abraham believed God, that's exactly what he means. He took all his eggs and he put them in one basket. That is God. Look at the second term here, reckoned. It was reckoned to him. You see, when this term in the Bible is used in reference to salvation, it speaks about legal transaction which God makes when he credits righteousness of Christ to your account. This is an accounting term when something is credited to your account. And that's exactly what happens, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And what, is the, what does God credit to you? It's the next word is the word righteousness. Righteousness, upright standing before God. You see, righteousness is not just absence of sin, but it is presence of holiness. It is presence of righteousness. It is what Jesus has accumulated on our behalf while he lived here for 33 years on this earth. To possess the righteousness of Christ is to be saved. So how did Abraham get saved? Now, if you look just at the font in your Bible, you will see that Paul quotes Old Testament. Paul didn't just make this up. He takes a passage from the Old Testament, and whenever you read a Bible and you see those smaller uppercase letters, you know that that is an Old Testament passage or a citation. And in the sense, it's like a hyperlink. It's like a hyperlink that Paul says, hey, you want more info on this? I want you to click here, and I want you to go there and figure out more about it. And that's what he does. So Paul gives us this hyperlink, and if we were to follow it, we will end up in Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to go there because we'll spend a little bit of time there. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is about 85 years old. You say, how do you know that? Because if you read Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, we know that Abraham was 75 years old when the Lord spoke to him the first time and told him to, live, to leave the land where he was residing. If you go to Genesis chapter 16, verse 3, it says, After Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And what was the result? In verse 16 it says, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So chapter 15 is probably somewhere prior to chapter 16. So when we're talking about chapter 15, Abraham is somewhere around 85 years old. Now look at chapter 15. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham, or Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, just that alone is awesome. I mean, if God were to show up to you and say, listen, do not fear, which is the most often repeated command in the Bible, do not fear. I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. Now, he's reiterating something that he said earlier, which we'll look at in a second. And verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Now, Genesis 15, 6 is the text that Paul cites in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, here I have a question for you. Was this when Abraham got saved? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, God credited, or Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I would argue that that is not the time when Abraham was saved. I would argue that Abraham was saved for about a decade already by this time. Now, you might say, well, why, why do you say that? I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11 when we're given his genealogy. And in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham for the first time. God speaks to him in verse 1, and he says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, prior to this moment, Abram was a member of a pagan, idolatrous family. How do we know that? We know that because in Joshua chapter 24, God says this, Thus says the Lord, in verse 2, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. This was a pagan family, and God shows up to Abraham, chooses Abraham, and he says to him, Abraham, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to bless you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. What was his response? Verse 4 says, So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham, or Abram, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Here's the question. Is this when Abram was saved? And I would argue that the answer is yes. You see, to leave everything and pretty much everyone you know behind and to go and be a sojourner in the land which you know nothing about is nothing short of an act of faith. In fact, that's the point that the author of Hebrews makes when he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Notice the author of Hebrews highlights the faith of Abraham, which was demonstrated by his obedience to the command that God given him. Furthermore, in our text, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, look at this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Guess what? This quote, all the nations will be blessed in you, is from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, because that is the promise that God made to him. And notice that Paul says that this message, that all the nations will be blessed through you, is the message of the gospel. So he is saying that the gospel was preached to Abraham, and Abraham responded in faith, and can that be anything short of salvation? I think the answer is no. Furthermore, this phrase, reckoned to him as righteousness, 
is used in the Bible not only to refer to something that happens at the beginning of your Christian walk, but it's something that happens throughout your Christian walk. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks of Abraham again, and he speaks of his faith in regards to the birth of Isaac. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. In the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And then Paul adds this, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. You see, from start to finish of your Christian life, your righteousness is credited to you on the basis of faith. And notice how perfectly this fits with the context of the book of Galatians or the context of our verses. Remember the two questions that Paul asked? The question number one is, how did you get saved? And how do you continue in your Christian life? How did you start? By doing something? By obeying something? Or by believing it? How do you continue in your Christian life? By faith. The correct answer is by faith alone. And so Abraham is a perfect illustration. He started his life by faith, and he continued by faith. Now think back to the context of the book of Galatians, which we're studying. You remember the claims that the Judaizers made, which Paul is trying to refute here. In Acts chapter 15, we have the summary or succinct summary of the claims that these false teachers made. This is basically what these false teachers taught in those churches. Acts 15.1 says this, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, and here's their teaching. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisee who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So basically they had two claims. You must be circumcised. And claim number two, you must absorb, absorb, absorb the law of Moses. When I used to speak English, I used to be able to say that. <laughs> That's what they were teaching the people in those churches. And no doubt, these people claimed Abraham, used Abraham to support their position. And so Paul says, okay, let's think this through. You want to argue that you have to get circumcised and you have to keep the law to be saved. Let's talk about this. You believe that circumcision and obedience to the law is necessary for salvation? Yes, they would say. Well, do you believe that Abraham was saved? Well, of course Abraham was saved. Abraham was the father of our nation. Well, when did Abraham get saved? Well, uh, Genesis 12. Okay, uh, when does the Bible say that it was credited to him as righteousness, that he was regarded as righteous? Well, Genesis 15. Well, question, when was Abraham circumcised? Genesis 17. In fact, if you go to Genesis 17, verse 24, it says, Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now, let's do a little math here. 12 and 15, I think, comes before 17, right? That, I think that's true even in Common Core math, right? 75 and 85 is before 99, right? 
how did Abraham get saved because he was circumcised? Does that make any sense? You see how foolish their position is? You see, Abraham was justified more than two decades before he was circumcised. So therefore, circumcision could not have played any part in his justification. That's the point that he's making. Now, what about observing the law? Question. Uh, when was the law of Moses instituted? If you were to read in your Bible, that's Exodus chapter 19, where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive Mosaic law. Is Exodus 19 before Genesis 12 or after? After. The law of Moses did not even exist when Moses, when Abraham was around. He did not have the law because it would come around many, many, many decades, 430 years later, as the book of Galatians will say later. So you're telling me that you have to get circumcised and you have to keep the law to be saved, and you're trying to use Abraham to prove that point when, when Abraham lived, he wasn't circumcised for more than two decades before he was, uh, when he was justified. And the law did not even exist. And you're telling me that it was necessary to do that. It makes no sense. It's foolish. And that is the point that Paul is making here. Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised or because he kept the law, which didn't exist. Abraham was saved. How? Because he believed God. Abraham believed God. Now just think about that. Phrase, Abraham believed God. I mean, God showed up to him, and God just made one promise. Abraham did not have the Bible. Abraham did not have anything that we have. He did not have all the evidence. I mean, he was a pagan guy. And God just shows up to him one day, makes one promise to him, that I'm going to bless you. And Abraham believed God. And how do we know he believed? Because he got up and he went. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him. As righteousness. Now notice he was regarded as righteous, not because of anything that he did. He simply trusted the promise which God made to him. That's why I look at verse 7. This is Paul's conclusion. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Listen, this is a command. I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let these false teachers come in and tell you anything else. Know this. Know what? That it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. You see, to be a child of Abraham and recipient of the blessings of Abraham, you don't have to be born from Abraham. You don't have to be circumcised and you don't have to keep the law. The only thing you have to have is the same faith that Abraham displayed. Abraham's account offers no support for these false teachers. In fact, it refutes it completely. Abraham did nothing and had nothing to offer but simply believing the message that God preached to him. So let's summarize this. In verses 1 through 5, Paul says, Your experience tells you that you got saved not because you were circumcised or kept the law, but because you simply believed the message that I preached to you. Abraham's experience confirms this as well because... Abraham believed the promise, and he was regarded as righteous. Now, that leads to the third appeal. In verses 8 and 9, we have appeal to Scripture. Look at verse 8. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Why does Paul appeal to Scripture? Well, reason number one 
is because Paul wants to prove that the gospel he is preaching is not out of step with Scripture. That's primary reason. You see, even if you have the best arguments on your side, if your arguments contradict Scripture, it doesn't matter. Paul could not prove his message unless he can go back to the Old Testament Scriptures and confirm that what he's saying does not contradict the Word of God. I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture, even Jesus himself. I mean, think about all the times that he was arguing with the religious leaders, and he would often say to them, have you not read? Have you not read? I mean, if you were to read your Bibles, you would know that David says this, right? Or he would say things like, it is written. It is written. Notice he appeals to the authority of Scripture. Now, this is a good lesson for us because... If we're going to hold on to certain truths and certain beliefs, you better be sure that it has backing in Scripture. Because when you present them and you argue that this proposition is true, why? If you can take people to the Word of God, then their argument is not with you, but with Scripture. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm going to show you that what I am teaching is from Scripture. And if you have a problem with that, well, guess what? Take it up with God because He's the author of Scripture. That's what he's saying here. And the second reason why Paul appeals to Scripture is because he wants to show that this was God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. Remember, Paul was accused of preaching this new message, which he made up. And Paul says, no, no, this is not a new message. This is the same message that was preached to Abraham all the way back in 2100 B.C. Now, look at Paul's rebuttal. It is interesting the way Paul phrases this. If you were to remove all the subordinate clauses, from this verse here, it would simply say this. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's amazing. Think about this. The scripture preached the gospel. Paul personifies scripture. The scripture preached the gospel. You see, Judaizers and false teachers, your argument is not with me, Paul says. Your argument is with scripture. Now, that's not the only time Paul says this, even in this book. If you go to chapter 4, verse 30, he says, But what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Again, he appeals to the authority of Scripture to prove that the point he's making is actually true. You see, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Scripture does not speak on its own because Scripture has an author. God speaks when Scripture speaks. I love the quote from Justin Peters. Where he says, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud. (laughs) Scripture speaks, and when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now notice the clause that Paul inserts here. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now here is what this phrase does not mean. When it says here, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, it does not mean to say that, you know, that God, who is the author of Scripture, is omniscient. He knows everything from beginning to end. And so God looked through the corridors of time, and He looks through, wow, from the 1st to the 21st century, I see all these Gentiles, and all of a sudden they're getting saved somehow without getting circumcised. So I should probably inform Abraham about it. That's not what he's saying. It's not that just God saw something happening and he's like, I got to tell Abraham about this. 
No, no, he says when scripture says foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he's simply saying that this was God's plan all along. And when he announced it to Abraham, he said from the very beginning that the Gentiles will be justified by faith alone. You see, God is absolutely sovereign over salvation. He chooses who gets saved. He chooses how you get saved. He chooses when you get saved. And we can clearly see that in the story of Abraham. He chooses one man from all of them. In that pagan land, in that pagan family, at the age of 75, he takes this man and he gives him faith to believe. Here's Paul's argument. God always intended to save people by faith and faith alone. Now look at this word justify. That God would justify Gentiles by faith. You see, the doctrine of justification, it stands at the heart of everything we believe and we proclaim around here. When you look at this word justified, it is used in two primary ways in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole. One, when you read the word justified, in most cases in reference to salvation, it refers to declaring someone righteous. So the first use of the word justified means to declare. I'll give you a few examples. Luke 7, 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. Literally, if you were to translate that, they justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, they can't make God righteous, but they can declare that God is righteous, and that is precisely what they're doing here. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who makes a declaration that one is righteous. Now, the second use of this word justified means to demonstrate or to show that one is righteous. For example, Luke chapter 10, verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself... He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What was he trying to do? He was trying to declare himself righteous before Jesus? No, he was trying to show to everybody that he's righteous, to demonstrate his righteousness to everyone. And who is my neighbor? And Jesus followed up with the parable. Luke 16, verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of man, but God knows your heart. What are you doing? You're declaring to everyone that you are righteous, but God knows who you are. Now see, in our context here, God is the author. The word justifies refers to declaration and not to demonstration. When we're talking about the doctrine of justification, we're saying that justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which He declares sinner to be righteous because His sin is forgiven in Christ and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to His account. That's what justification is. You see, justification does not change you. Justification changes the way God looks at you. That's all it does in the highest court of heaven, the highest judge looks at you through the blood of Christ and he says, you are righteous. Because your sins are forgiven and because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account and God looks at you and he declares you righteous. This has nothing to do with anything in you. 
has nothing to do with race, with your rank, with any rituals or rules you obey. Absolutely nothing. This justification is based on your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. God declares you righteous simply because you put your faith in Christ. And notice he says that this message of justification by faith was proclaimed to Abraham. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Again, is that not amazing that, God, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls this message the gospel? I mean, is this not a good news? That Abraham, listen, I know you're a pagan. I know you're worshiping stars and everything else. But guess what? I'm going to bring blessings through you to all the world to all the nations, to all the tribes. To say that there is salvation, blessing coming to them, is good news. It sure is good news. And think about this. When this promise was spoken, the nation of Israel did not yet exist. Abraham did not even have a son yet. He says, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. Now, what blessings did God have in mind when he made that promise? I mean, Paul tells us here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is nothing less than justification by faith. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Abraham, you have to simply believe me. And through you, I will bless others because they will exercise the same faith as you do. How will the nations be blessed? Now think about the concept of progressive revelation. Because Abraham was not given all the information here in Genesis chapter 12 or Genesis chapter 15. And you see, God did not require him to understand everything, but God required him to believe everything that he told him. And guess what? Abraham believed the message that God told him. Abraham did not know everything, but Abraham knew more than we often give him credit for. Think about this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. The author of Hebrews says this, By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And listen to this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I'm like, we read that in the book of Revelation. And we're thinking like, that's new stuff right here. And here is Abraham looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. Abraham understood a lot more than we give him credit for. God told him the goal, but he didn't tell him exactly the plan. The goal is that through you, everyone is going to be blessed. Because everyone who places their faith in me just like you have will be blessed. We know the rest of the story. From this one man, God gives him a son. From his son, there is a family. From that family, there is a nation. And then for... 2,000 years, God preserves that nation until the seed of Abraham comes, through whom the blessings come to all the nations. The promise that was made in Genesis chapter 3 was repeated in Genesis chapter 12, was reiterated in Genesis chapter 15, and then is given over again and over again through other covenants made with David and elsewhere. He says that seed is going to bring blessing, but it all is going to come through you, Abraham. Jesus Christ comes. 2,000 years later, after the promise was given to Abraham, and after Abraham believed, he comes and he lives a perfect life, and he goes to the cross and he dies. He dies on our behalf. Three days later, he rises. 
And when he rose again, he ascended on high. And you remember his final words, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all the nations. Of all the nations. You're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel to all the nations because the blessings that were promised to Abraham are going to go through you to all the nations. It is the same old message that I preached to Abraham that is now being fulfilled when you go and you faithfully proclaim the gospel of grace. That's why Paul concludes in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. If you believe in Christ you receive the blessings that were given to Abraham. That's why I say the point of this chapter is justification was, is, and always will be by faith. But here's another point that we have to stress. Then when we're talking about the doctrine of justification, justification has to do with your position, not your practice. You see, Abraham was justified when he believed God. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. But have you read the rest of his story? I mean, Genesis 15, he doubts God. Genesis 16, he fathers Ishmael with Hagar. Later on, he lies about his wife, putting her in jeopardy. I mean, do all these examples demonstrate that Abraham was not saved? No. They demonstrate that Abraham, while justified, was still a sinner. The declaration that God made regarding him is true. You are justified by faith. Through good and bad, Abraham kept coming back to God. You see, Abraham did not have a perfect faith but he had a persevering faith. You are justified by faith, and that has to do with your position before God, not your practice. See, his practice demonstrated that he was justified by faith. Now, we talk about this, you're justified by faith alone, apart from anything else on your part. And you might say, well, have you read James too? Yes, I have. If you want to turn to James chapter 2, listen to this. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And you're like, what? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's going on here? James, what happened? What happened? Are you, are you disagreeing with Paul? What's going on here? The first, Bible has no contradictions. So James is not contradicting Paul here. Second, if you read the context of James and you read the context of Galatians and Book of Romans, you will understand that Paul and James, they're arguing against different enemies. They're fighting different enemies. Paul is arguing against those who say that you have to get circumcised and you have to keep the law in order to be saved. James is arguing against those who claim to be justified but have no works to show for it. They're fighting different enemies. Listen to how James opens this section. James 2.14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Cannot faith save him? You see, the issue here is not whether you're saved by works, but whether your faith 
that does not demonstrate itself by works is genuine faith or not. That's why in verse 18 he says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Congratulations. You're not better off than demon. If you claim to have faith, but you have no works to demonstrate such faith. He goes on in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then to prove his point, he goes to Abraham. He gives this example in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And notice the example that he uses here. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Question. When did Abraham offer up Isaac, his son? That's Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is almost 40 years after Genesis 12. And notice this is the example that James uses to illustrate that faith that Abraham was, was genuine faith. And how does he know that it's genuine? Because he demonstrated that faith in action. That's why verse 22 says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, he was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see, faith, you are justified by faith alone, but faith that justifies is never alone. That's the point that James makes here. We know that Abraham's faith was genuine, and he demonstrated the genuineness of his faith because he was willing to obey even though it cost him much. By obeying God's command to sacrifice his son, Abraham demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. So James is not contradicting Paul. They're both saying the same thing. You are saved by faith alone. But if you are saved, there's going to be fruit of that in your life, which will confirm that your faith is genuine. Let's bring all this together. Let me ask you, are you a child of Abraham? Because that's the point that Paul makes in this passage. He says, those who are of faith are children of Abraham. Have you believed this message of the gospel that it is all of faith? It is all of Christ. I simply believe. I simply trust. I simply cling to his work. And I don't bring nothing to say, Lord, you should accept me because this, that, or the other. You know, you're going to preach the gospel to unbelievers, and the question that you should ask, hey, if you stand before God, and he asks you, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? And every single time, 99%, unless somebody really knows the gospel and goes to a solid church, it will be like, because I, boom, 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 because I go to church, because I'm a good person, because, listen, the answer is not because I, but because he. Because of Christ, because, yeah, you can say, because I believe in Christ. I place my faith in Christ, and it is Christ who accepts me. It is Christ who gets me there. And that's what Paul was saying here. It was always by faith. You see, saints in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. They look forward to the one who would justify them. And we who live today, we look back. So whether you look forward or you look back, it is still faith. It is faith in the sacrifice of the one who died on your behalf. You don't look to yourself. You look to someone else, and that someone else is the one who was the seed of Abraham, of, which, of whom we'll study in the next couple of weeks. Next question you might ask is, are you living like a son of Abraham? 
Because Paul is not concerned here not only with how you get saved, but how you live. Because you might think like, yeah, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But you know what? Now that I'm saved, man, I really got to pick it up and I really got to work because if not, no. You're not saved because of any work that you do. Anything and everything that you do, it is, the God, it is God by His Spirit who's working in you. And all you're doing is you are responding. Now, this is not let go and let God. We're not saying that because you're going to work because He who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, right? You work out your salvation because God is at work in you. You're justified by faith alone. But guess what? All who justify will demonstrate their faith just like Abraham did. So how are we going to respond to this? In response, number one, let's praise God for this gospel. I mean, this gospel that has been around for a long, long, long time. That's why it is good old gospel. Abraham heard this gospel. Paul heard this gospel. You heard this gospel that you were saved by faith alone. Praise God for that. We're going to live by this gospel? Live in this freedom that God has given you. We don't try to earn our position or our acceptance but we simply rely on Christ. And let us proclaim this gospel. Because notice Paul says here that this blessing is for all the nations. This blessing is for all the people. They ought to experience the blessings that God has given you and me. And how are they going to experience those blessings? Because you and I will preach this gospel to them, and they will believe in this message, and they will be saved, and they will receive the blessings of Abraham. So let us go. Let us preach and may the Lord use us to bring many more people to the kingdom. Bring many more people to the foot of the cross when they will look to Christ, confess Him, and be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would understand this, that we would believe this, and that we would preach this. We pray that you would let these truths sink deep into our heart. We ask, Lord, that you would put people in our paths and so that we would go out of the way to reach those who need to hear this news. We ask, Lord, that you would fill this place with those who need to hear this gospel and believe. We praise you that we are recipients of this grace. We praise you that you show this grace to us in Christ. You deserve all the glory for that. And we give you all the praise. Because we understand it is not in us, but it is all in you. In Jesus' name, amen.